Luke chapter 15. My question that I want to start us off this morning with is, what kind of person does God love? What kind of person does God love? A good question, a question that some have wrestled with, questions that maybe that we have wrestled with, questions we should wrestle with. In our day and age, we have seen this question answered by the, the moral, therapeutic, self-esteem culture that we live in these days. They've dealt with the assumption that to answer that question is, is that, well, what kind of person does God love? Well, God loves everybody. And there's a lot of truth to that. I'm not discounting that. That is absolutely true. God loves. Now, from a young age, in our culture, we have been taught to accept ourselves by the way that we are. To be accepted by who you are. In who you are alone, right? To embrace your faults, to embrace your failures, to, to just let go of all of the, the negativity, all the negative thoughts and, and, and the bad vibes that you get when you do bad things. And to just forget about those bad things, to, to excuse them because these are, this is who you are. And if God is love, so, so make the, the jump now with me, those people hold to this moral, therapeutic Christianity. They jump then to the assumption of this is who we are, and I'm always going to be this way. And if God is love, and 1 John 4, 8, absolutely true, it's the word of God, then he loves everyone the same, no matter what. No matter faults and failures and such. This is the popular assumption. And if they believe in God, then they believe that that must be true. But a question we want to ask, though, as well, to that one question, how it's genuinely answered by many, is does that hold up to reality? And, and what, I, what I mean by that is, should God disapprove of some? Should God disapprove of some kinds of people, though? I mean, I mean, there, there are the... There are the Hitlers out there, and there are the Stalins out there, and there are the, the terrorists out there. Should God disapprove of their behavior, of those kind of people? Whatever the personal conception of God someone might have, it probably involves the, the disapproving of genocide and torture and terrorism and, and murderers. And, and I bet you can get most people who, who hold to that moral, therapeutic, self-esteem, religion or Christianity, I bet you can even get them to agree that, yes, God loves, but God doesn't accept those kinds of people. So if that's the case, where is the line, though? Where is the line for those kind of people? Where does God draw the line? I mean, how should God feel about an unfaithful husband? How should God feel about an abusive parent or a neglectful parent? Does he love alcoholics, lazy bums, cheaters, people with anger issues? What about the proud, whose number one subject is themselves? Or, or people who gossip and speak harshly with hurtful words 
of others. And this is only to name a few. We can go all day. You see where I'm, I'm going with this. You see how this question of who, what kind of people does God love is an important question. What's amazing, as important that question is, is Luke chapter 15 makes it very clear the kind of people God loves. And I hope that as we hear this message today, and at the end of the message, that you will be grateful, that you will be joyful to hear the answer and hear the words of our Savior this morning. Let's look at Luke chapter 15 together, and I'm going to start reading for us. And we're going to read through 1 through 10. Listen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman? having ten coins, silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there, will be, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see this inerrant, inspired word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. What a beautiful passage this is. It is absolutely just stunning. Before we go any further, I want to set the context for us here in chapter 15 and, and for these, these first two parables. <clears throat> chapter 15 is actually made up of three parables. The parable of the of the, of the good shepherd, or the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the, the prodigal son, or the lost son. And, and this chapter, this chapter has become known what is called the heart of the third gospel. This chapter has become known the heart of the third gospel because this is where we see the, the theme of, of Luke's gospel, of, of God's love and mercy, the, the very thing he wants Theophilus to get. All, right, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4, what he wants Theophilus to understand and get from the historical narrative of the teachings of Christ, that God's love and mercy for human beings, that's what he wants to see, and how this loving, holy God also calls his people to repentance and to conversion, and it comes with amazing power, but also clarity. Jesus is speaking directly to humanity here. <clears throat> He's speaking directly to us. He's, these parables are meant for every single one of us from cultures all over the world to understand and, 
and comprehend. And this story of how it happens and how it goes about before Jesus tells the parables isn't something, as we've been going through the Luke's gospel, isn't something new for us to see in Jesus and the kind of people that draw near to Jesus and who Jesus goes to. He goes to tax collectors. He goes to sinners. It can't be said enough who these people were. When, when the Bible says tax collector, they are, they are talking about some bad dudes, some corrupt people, the kind of people you wouldn't really trust and people you would want in your home. They were traitors to their own people. They were collaborators, uh, uh, collaborators with the enemy. They were extortionists. And, and then there's this, this whole other group that's with Jesus too, and they're called sinners. And, and the Pharisees, they, they, they had a theology that believed that they, everyone was a sinner, including themselves. They, they, they believed that. So, so when they say sinners, they mean these people who were externally, intentionally breaking God's law. Who, who didn't care who saw it. These were prostitutes and fornicators and homosexuals and liars and thieves and alcoholics, drug addicts, abusers, abusers murderers, etc. That's what this group is. And the Pharisees and scribes knew the law. That if they gathered with them and fellowship with them and drank and ate with them, that they too could possibly be stained. That they could be considered ceremonial uncleaned and have to get through the ritual cleaning. So they're not sitting around. I'm not, I'm not sitting around with those tax collectors and sinners. And, and for them, how stunning, how stunning it was for them to see Jesus at very best in their minds was just a good prophet. Hang out with these people. Again, eat and drink with them fellowshipping with them. The Pharisees' attitude is, if you're not like me, then you don't get in. And over and over again, we've seen Jesus attack and destroy this group of individuals, their false assurance, their false pride, their false self-righteousness. Because Jesus says again, and we, we don't hear it in this passage, but we see the heartbeat of it, repent, unless you too will likewise perish. So the real scandal here in this text is not what is Jesus is doing. The real scandal is the Pharisees. The real scandal is the, the Pharisees and what they are, what they're not doing and what they're completely missing as the point of the law, right? To love the Lord God and to love your neighbor. They completely are missing it. And so these parables... They teach us about a couple things. They teach us about repentance. They teach us about the beauty of repentance and the freedom and the joy expressed and experienced in repentance. It, it definitely talks about the false sense of security and the self-righteousness, again, of the Pharisees. And, and, that, and that also for ourselves, it warns us of what self-righteousness can uh, give us in a false sense of security. It also tells us about how we are to love the unbelieving and the lost people around us by sharing the gospel with them and going after them, tax collectors and sinners. But brothers and sisters, the point of these parables is far more than just those things. 
Those are wonderful things, and this will be taught and have been taught throughout the Gospel of Luke. But all of those things and what we see in the parable, what it really shows us is what kind of God the God of the Bible is. And it shows us what this God and how this God has demonstrated his love. That's what these parables tell us. Stunning. Right? And, and that's the stunning part of the text. That's the, that's the real shocker. That's the, the real scandal that the holy God can love people like this. It shows how God loves us sinners. How he receives sinners. These are my three points if you want to. And, and don't get used to this, but this is a little alliteration. How he receives sinners. How he retrieves sinners. And how he rejoices over sinners. That's pretty good. Yeah. Bill would be proud of me on that. He is. He's smiling. It doesn't happen often. So number one, he receives sinners. What makes these parables so great is that, again, Jesus is using that common understanding that we can get. I mean, to be human, I mean, agree with me on this, and I hope you do. To be human is to lose things. Precious things or even things that we don't care about, we lose things. Have you ever lost anything? Have you ever lost anything that you really cared about, that you maybe it's still lost? If you had, then, then you just know how devastating and, and agonizing it is. And you can, in a sense, feel the way the shepherd feels and, and also the way that the woman feels in these two parables. When my, when my parents came to, to our wedding, to Christina and I's wedding in Pensacola, uh, my mom brought some special jewelry that she's had for a long time. To, to let Christina wear, and I don't even know if she ever really wore it or not. I, I don't even really know, and I don't even know what it was. You know, it might have been some, a necklace or some pearls, stuff like that. Um, but anyways, uh, after the wedding, my mom took the jewelry back or wherever she had it, and she, she put it away into the hotel room in a safe place, safe, secure spot, and, and then they went out together with some friends and had a, had a good time there in Pensacola, and, and when they came back, they were kind of packing and getting ready to go. They were, leave, they were gonna leave the next day, and, and my mom couldn't find the jewelry. And so they turned that hotel room upside down. They turned their, their luggage upside down, and they could not find this jewelry at all. When, you know, even the next day, you know, they still couldn't find it. They frantically searched and searched um, because they were leaving. And she had to leave with, without it. Just a few weeks ago, you see where this is going. Just a few weeks ago, I... Uh, I went down to my parents' house to help them move, and they were moving from St. Augustine up to up North Georgia, and, and, and guess what my mom found? My mom found in a small box, like a jewelry box, not like one of the flippy fancy ones, but just one of the cardboard white ones, and, and in that was some weird, you know, some dumb trinkets, and she was just going to chuck, and, and there's that, you know, that flat cotton, and underneath the cotton was the jewelry. She really has no idea how it got there. Probably put it there, of course. You know, maybe even that day had to be that day. Think about that. The jewelry she lost 16 years ago, she found. And she was, she was stunned. And she kind of felt bad because she kind of blamed the maid. Right? She kind of blamed the maid. She felt bad about it. Um, but she was excited, and she told us. And I was like, wow, I remember that years ago you telling me. But my goodness, that's, that's amazing. And this is the common experience that Jesus is sharing with us in, these, in this text, but he's teaching a very important truth to us. 
Why was Jesus then being criticized by the Pharisees and the scribes? For not just being with the tax collectors and sinners, but he was fellowshipping with them. Again, he was eating and drinking with them. According to, to them, a person like Jesus shouldn't have been with them. So the question is, is what was Jesus doing? Well, as we have already seen, the kingdom of God is going to be made up of all kinds of people. And one thing that all of these people are going to, be, uh, are going to have in call, call, uh, common with one another, even though they're from all, from all tribes and nations and tongues, the one thing that they will have in common together is, is everyone that's in the kingdom of God is a sinner. Is a sinner. And it is and in a sinner of all kinds of ways. So looking at both of the main characters then, of these stories, these two main characters that Jesus kind of sets up as the heroes of the stories aren't even characters that the Pharisees would look up to. They wouldn't look up to, they wouldn't look up to shepherds. Shepherds in the first centuries were considered dirty. That's why they were shepherds. They were considered to not be trusted, like just above thieves. In a court of, in a court of law, a, a shepherd's uh, um, a word can be put into question because he's a shepherd. They're known to be liars. But Jesus is setting us up something totally different about the shepherd, isn't he? He's meant to remind the people of God of the shepherd of Psalm 23. The good shepherd, the good shepherd of the image of God, of his care and his love for his people. In the second parable, Jesus puts up this, a, a woman, a woman who had lost a coin. And, and just for the, the sake of how she frantically searched for the coin, one coin, means that this woman was poor. Some, some even said that this, this ten coins was part of her dowry. What was given to her when she, was, when she got married as, a, in a sense, a security payment to help take care of her over the years. So to lose one would be a huge compromise to her security of the future or her future. The Pharisees looked down on her. She's not important. She's a woman. She's poor. So Jesus is point putting in here these two characters before the Pharisees to show them what's vitally missing in them, and that is humility. You know what's revealing is, is what they say to Jesus. Amazing what they say to Jesus. They're grumbling to Jesus, and, and, and they grumble about who he is hanging out with. Look at verse 2 again. You can see it. And here in verse 2, what's amazing is what they meant as condemnation of Jesus. What they meant was to put down Jesus and to really point out what kind of terrible character he would have. Their very words actually reveal something incredibly beautiful about the gospel. It reveals the gospel. It reveals the, the good news of the gospel. And that is this first point is that God receives sinners. That God receives sinners. That is such good news. So they're putting Jesus down, and Jesus is saying, yep, that's the entirety of the gospel. And it shows any of us who have fallen short, which is everyone, that there is still hope, that there is always a chance, that no one is too bad and no one is too good. 
I know this will not come to, will not uh, be a surprise to you to too many, but I think maybe the way I word this may sound fresh and helpful. But did you know that this church, that this church, Sovereign Grace Church, we do not allow good people to join this church. We only take sinners. Sinners who know they are sinners. And if you haven't seen the the need to repent, then, then this church says you cannot be a member of this church. We will continue to walk with you. We will continue to share the gospel with you. We will continue to plead with you and pray for you. But you cannot be a member of this church. It's why we want to read and we want to hear a person's testimony when they want to join. We want to hear what they believe about the gospel because we want to hear their experience as a sinner and what it meant for them to repent when they were engaged by the gospel. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Only sinners can come to this table. Only sinners can come to the sin. Only repented sinners can be baptized in this church. And the Pharisees looked at the tax collectors and the sinners as unworthy. But they didn't see themselves as being unworthy. Yet Jesus only receives sinners. Here's what J.C. Ryle says here. He says, he says, do we have a sense of our own sin? Do we feel bad and wicked and guilty and deserving God's anger? Is the remembrance of our past lives of sin bitter to us? Does the recollection of our our recollection of our past and conduct make us ashamed? Then we are the very people who ought to apply to Christ just as we are. Pleading nothing of our own, making no useless delay. Christ will receive us graciously and pardon us freely, and give us eternal life because he is the only one that receives sinners. There are very few places in the world where a group of people can come together and confess together that we are broken and that we are needy and that we are sinners before God. But yet we also come together confessing our need for Christ. And what Jesus says here in this text, he says he receives sinners. Actually, it's the Pharisees that say it, that he receives sinners. So let me make this simple for us logically. I came across this this week. It's a simple syllogism. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but you'll understand in a second. And, And it starts with, it's almost like a math problem of words, right, to make a logical statement. And you have two premises, so it's like A plus B equals C. And and the first one, the first premise is, and it's very important that we start here, because this is what we see in the passage, that Jesus receives sinners. That's premise number one, that Jesus receives sinners. The second premise of the syllogism is this, is that Ben Roberts, me, it's official, is a sinner. Jesus receives sinners, and Ben Roberts is a sinner. Therefore, Jesus receives Ben Roberts. And that's not just me, that's sinners. You, you, me, 
He doesn't receive sinners who don't who are trying to clean themselves up. He's not receiving sinners who are trying to make themselves and their situation better. But he only receives those who, who can't do anything but repent. That's all we can do. And the love of God here says, I receive sinners. He receives sinners. But secondly, we see in these parables is that God retrieves sinners. These simple parables, again, most of it is dedicated to the search. In the first parable, the sheep, the one sheep is lost. It went one way or another, you know, it, it got lost, and it went its own way. How about that? But either way, the math of the survival of this one sheep was not good. Why would the shepherd risk the search for one sheep when the 99 were still there, and if he left, they would be vulnerable and unprotected? Why go to find one? And, and despite all the reasons why the, the shepherd should just abandon that first sheep, Jesus says that this shepherd goes, goes out anyways, and he searches, leaving the 99. And he doesn't just search, does he? But he finds. He doesn't just search, but he finds. He finds the sheep and he retrieves it. He joyfully lays the sheep upon his shoulders and he carries it back to the fold. One of the earliest Christian statues, pieces of art that were found of Christians from the third century was a statue of the Good Shepherd carrying the lost sheep. This is a text that the church loved. And the second parable was much like the first. The, the woman loses the coin one way or another. Who knows how she does it? I mean, I know how she does it. She's got kids. I don't mean to speak, that wasn't the disdain. It sounded like it, but it wasn't. It's just part of life. I did it to my parents. God bless them. But she searches for the coin frantically. You see how she searches for it sacrificially. She is sweeping and moving furniture. She's burning precious lamp oil, staying up all night, diligently searches until she, like the shepherd, finds it. And indeed, she finds it. Again, these parables are showing us the character of God. The sinner is the lost sheep. The coin. That's the sinner. And what Jesus is saying is that there's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy going on here, self-fulfilling parable going on here. It, and, and that's happening right before the Pharisees. Because the, the 99 are grumbling and walking away. And the retrieved, searched-out sinners are found with Jesus right then. And what are they doing? They're eating and drinking. They're rejoicing together. And this is the heart of God, how, how God retrieves what was lost. The holy and righteous one, he searches and he retrieves the lost. This is what God is showing us in this parable, what Jesus is showing us 
is that, and we see it throughout the whole biblical narrative, is that God is searching and retrieving and bringing back his people. And ultimately, he was going to bring it back and, and do it completely and fully in Christ. We read the, the prophecy of that from uh, Ezekiel 34 this morning. He was speaking about Jesus, the good shepherd, going out and retrieving his sheep and bringing them back and bringing them closed. And this is the divine rescue mission. Jesus is it. He has sent his son to return sinners to fellowship by the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. And just as the shepherd and the woman, they spared no expense. They, they made no sacrifice was too great in order to experience the joy of finding what was lost. Can you see what's going on here? So does Jesus endure the pain, the sacrifice, and the humiliation of the cross for what? For the joy of seeing lost people restored to God. Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what God is doing. This is what God is doing for the helpless sheep and the lost coin who has done nothing to help themselves in being found. Your lostness and my lostness is, is all we contribute to our salvation. And he has done this through Christ. And he is still doing this today. He is still searching out and retrieving sinners to himself. If you are in Christ, then this is what he has done for you. Some may say, but, but I'm the one who responded to the gospel. I'm the one who placed my faith in Christ, and I'm the one who repented of my sin. And to that I would say true, but only because God retrieved you first. Because his sheep know his name. And when he calls his sheep, they will come to him. He retrieves sinners. He receives sinners. And lastly, this is awesome. He rejoices over sinners. Yes, I just said that. As the, the shepherd hoisted up the dirty sheep on his shoulders, he went away rejoicing not ticked off at the sheep because it got lost, like I do when my dog wanders the neighborhood. But he hoists it up on his shoulders, joyfully rejoicing, and he gathers others to come rejoice with him. But look again at verse 7. It says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the same thing happens when the woman, she rejoices when, and she calls her friends to celebrate when she finds the, the, the lost coin. And verse 10 says, listen to this, it says, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is he saying here? What, what's then going on in heaven? 
pretty obvious, isn't it? But it's also kind of surprising. It's also really encouraging because why would the angels, why would heaven rejoice over me? Remember, I'm, I'm a sinner. I don't, I don't deserve rejoicing. I don't deserve this kind of joy, this kind of adulation. He's not rejoicing necessarily over me. But he's rejoicing over the work of Christ in me. And it's not just heaven and angels that are rejoicing. Because these two things, heaven and angels, are often in the scriptures synonymous for God himself. What makes God rejoice? Let me put it this way. What makes God sing when sinners are brought home through his son? When sinners come home. The irony of this passage is that God is not rejoicing over the 99 righteous persons or the 99 sheep, right, that are still there. The good people who don't think they need to be found. The party was where Jesus was, not the guys walking away in disappointment. But God delights and rejoices in when someone, and when one is who is lost in their sins, they're unable to find their way, they repent and come home. God loves the way that the shepherd loved the lost sheep. And the way that this woman loved her lost coin. But the joy came when those things were found. I, found, I saw this this week. Uh, this is a quote by B.B. Warfield. He said, Jesus does not rejoice in sinners. It's not sin he loves, nor sinners as sinners. What he rejoices in is the rescue of sinners from their sin. He rejoices not in your sin. See, there's the, the problem back to what I was starting with, with the question is, well, what kind of people does God love? Because where we want to stop in this moral, therapeutic, self-esteem culture is we just want to say God rejoices in, in me as a sinner and just accepts me as I am. And the problem is, is that's not the truth. God rejoices in the rescue of sinners from their sin. He takes you away from your sin. The love of God means that he loves us where we are, but he loves us and not letting us stay there. And that is so missed, isn't it? I think, and, and, not, and, and I, we want to always poise it out to others, but even in our own hearts. Because we can become so accepting of our own sin and not pursuing holiness. And we justify that because we say God loves me. And, and it's absolutely true, but isn't that an abuse? I wouldn't accept that from my children. He's bringing about a new birth. That's the love of God. He brings about regeneration. That's the love of God. He brings about transformation of sinners. That's the love of God. And he does it through repentance. And those are the ones. That is who God rejoices in. Because they have been rescued. We all have a need for repentance. It's, it's universal. 
Just because the 99 stayed put doesn't mean they are already righteous and they didn't need to repent. When, when Jesus says that heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents than the 99 of the righteous who don't need repentance, do you think that Jesus is saying that there are no people who are righteous or that there are, that there are people in this world who are righteous and don't need repentance? No. That's not what he's saying. Do you think he is saying there are people in the world who don't think they need to repent and who do think they are righteous? Yes, that's exactly what he is saying. The reason why some people who call themselves Christians, who go to church, who do all the right things and who, show ne who never show the fruit of repentance, meaning there's very little humility, and cannot extend, listen to this, they cannot extend grace to people who know they are sinners. The reason why people who call themselves Christians, who go to church, they do all the right things, they never show the fruit of repentance, they show very little penalty, and they never can extend grace to those who know they are sinners is because they are the ones who do not think they need to repent. They are the 99. We must not be like that. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons that keeps us, I think, from repenting, maybe keeps you from repenting, is that we fear that if we repent, then that means humiliation. But what do these parables teach us? Humiliation may come from man. People may look down. The 99 are going to look down on you but not from God. What is God doing in these passages? He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. Again, here's what J.C. Ryle had to say. He said, let the person who is afraid to repent consider well these verses we are looking at and be afraid no more. There is nothing on God's part to justify your fears. An open door is set before you. A free pardon awaits you. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us all from, cleanse us all from unrighteousness. Let the person who is ashamed to repent consider these verses and, and cast shame aside. What though the world mocks and jests at your repentance, while man is mocking, angels are rejoicing. The very change which sinners call foolishness is a change which fills heaven with joy. Have you repented? This is, after all, the spiritual question which concerns us. What shall profit us to know God's love if we do not use it? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Repent. Have you repented? Because this passage, again, is for sinners. There are those who have repented and who have been found, and there are those who have not repented, so they have not been found. And the good news of the gospel isn't really good until you understand the bad news first for yourself. Until you see yourself like a sinner, a lost sheep, and a lost coin, even today, the Lord may be searching you this morning. And maybe he has even found you this morning. 
then come in repentance. Even this morning, there is still room at the table. Or do you struggle this morning to believe that God loves you? Then consider these parables because of the good news of God's love. The good news of God's love isn't that he loves the righteous because there's no such thing. The good news is that he is merciful and his forgiveness is extended to all of those who repent. If you've turned to Christ through repentance and faith, then, then God delights in you. He rejoices over you. He takes joy in your return to him. Not because you are holy and righteous, but because, or because you have never messed up, but because of the faithfulness of his son. That's why he loves us. That's why he, he takes, accepts, in a sense, our repentance, because of the faithfulness of the Son, who, who lived the perfect, sinless life that we could not live. And he died on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that was due to us. And yet also he conquered death, sealing the new covenant through his resurrection. That's why, that is why he takes the costly party throwing measures he does for us because in the end it brings him great delight to love you i started off by asking a question what kind of people does god love do you know the answer now god doesn't delight in those who seem to be righteous he doesn't delight in those who think they are not sinners or even those who delight in their sin and don't even repent. It's not for the good, the decent, the law-abiding people. He loves those who are lost and he delights when they repent. This is good news for us. God's love and his favor had, if it had followed the Pharisees' program, of acceptance, then none of us would have been loved at all. If it has followed the, the Pharisees' program, none of us would have been included. All of us would have been left lost. There is none righteous, no, not one. And there's not one of us that could stand this morning or even come to the table this morning together as one who deserves to come to the table. That was the big problem with the Pharisees. And if we're good enough, and, 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 and even if we were good enough, let me just put this out there, even if we were good enough to do it, to get there, we would always be in danger, wouldn't we, of losing it. You would always be in danger of losing it and losing salvation. But that's not the gospel. That's not, that's not grace. God's love is not rooted in us. God's love is, is rooted in his own character and, it, and, and, and not in our goodness and in our obedience, but it is rooted in, in him and in his righteousness. It is by his grace alone that we have been saved in Christ alone. That's all the way, only reason why we can stand. And so now us sinners, we have assurance our assurance is not in us. Our assurance is in the one who found us. 
And every time we sin, we are not in danger of losing something we can never earn in the first place. Our confidence is in Christ alone. So you can say in confidence that Jesus receives sinners. I am a sinner. Therefore, Jesus receives me. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have shown us such mercy and you have shown us such grace in the many lost sheep here in this room. And yet in your sovereign grace, you have searched and you've retrieved and you've made new. You you didn't bring back the same sheep. You bring back new creations in Christ. I pray this morning as we respond as the church together that we would, in a sense, gather the encouragement of one another as we are able to talk about these very important things. Lord, may we really get to the heart of our of repentance in our own lives. Let us be overcome by the rejoicing that you give over the lost sinner who repents instead of laying in fear over the humiliation that man or the 99 can mock of us. Lord, help us now. It's by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.